Matthew chapter number 5. Here we go. We got everybody rolling, I think. Matthew chapter 5. We uh, got down through about verse 21. That's where we're going to pick up. And uh, we're just going to work down through. be really nice to get the whole chapter, but we'll see what the clock does for us and how far we get. Matthew 5, and uh, chapter 5, verse 21. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. And uh, remember from last week we were talking there in verse 21, ye have heard that it was said of old time, verse 22, but I say unto you. Then verse 27, ye have heard that it was said of them of old time, verse 28, but I say unto you. Verse 31, it hath been said, verse 32, but I say unto you. Verse 33, again, ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, verse 34, but I say unto you. Verse 38, ye have heard that it hath been said. Verse 39, but I say unto you. Verse 43, ye have heard that it hath been said. Verse 44, but I say unto you. And again, those, those get bannered about quite a bit, and people use them to say that, see, Christ is changing the law, he's changing the word of God, and uh, he's doing this and that. And really, last time we saw... He's not changing anything. He's rather intensifying the law. He's, he Rather, he's coming along and he's intensifying the, the standard of righteousness of the Mosaic law, and he's moving it to the New Covenant standard. And the whole issue here is the righteous lifestyle of kingdom living, but it's going to be based on now the heart motivation. And it's not just living correctly in the details and doing it just what the details said, but rather that, that living is to come from the heart. And you, you, it takes that inward issue, and that's the thing. And even for us in the body of Christ, it's a heart issue. You know, you can learn all the verses, quote them up and down, argue somebody down, and it never really changed you because you don't let it impact your, your heart. You just are doing it to win the case. And here, what Christ is doing is he's intensifying it. And he's demonstrating the righteous lifestyle of kingdom living. And that's going to be required of the kingdom saints. And he's doing it here in the Sermon on the Mount. And this message is really for the purpose of declaring God's name among the nations. And the righteous lifestyle that he's describing here for them was really for the purpose of declaring God's glory as a testimony before the nations. And it goes back there to that passage in Deuteronomy 4. It was not for the purpose of gaining his approval or his righteousness or his justification for the believers. These folks here are not doing these things and were not told to do them 
in order to have God's approval in the sense of gaining justification and so forth. Rather, they're doing it to be a testimony to declare his name and all that he was to manifest him. And we've studied in other lessons the issue that it's always the issue of faith. Faith has always been what God looks for in man. And it's, it's because people will use this passage to show a works salvation. And really, the, the folks he's talking to are already justified. <laughs> it's our, they're already the little flock. They're already believers. And uh, God gave them a message. And when man operates in faith based on the word of God given to him, their message here just requires a righteous lifestyle. And again, we can take a lot of the the, the thoughts and the principles and apply them to ourselves, quite honestly, Romans 12 is right here for us. If you want your Sermon on the Mount, if you will, Romans 12 is it. It's that righteous lifestyle. So Israel, <coughs> the, the reason for all of that, by the way, was the national purpose. And that has to do again with the, the purpose of Israel and the kingdom and so forth. So when somebody says, hey, I follow the Sermon on the Mount, well, when we go down through here, you can just look at them and go, give them the old Bronx cheer, because it just isn't so. Because some of the stuff in here you and I cannot do. It's impossible for us to do. If you look there at verse 21, ye have heard that it was said before of them of old time, thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment, but I say unto you. So that's the sixth commandment. And he's talking about murder. That's what he's talking about. And if they were found guilty of murder, they were to be executed. So he's reaching back to Numbers 35, verse 24, and he's reaching back into Deuteronomy 19, verse 15 to 20, and he's bringing out the issue that if someone was found guilty of murder, they were to be executed. And that's the judgment that, he, that he's pronouncing there in verse 21. So if you go and do this today, you're going to go have a trial. You may, it may be something else. You may get off on a tech, tech, technicality, but not here. This isn't going to be the case. Verse 22, but I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. You notice how he goes beyond actually killing someone now to just being angry, <clears throat> by the way, and calling him Raka, so he's, you're calling him names, you're name calling. So now he moves the commandment from just the activity to now there's a heart motivation in the commandment. He's intensifying the commandment to, to include the demand that your heart not even be angry at the person. See, you can, you can be angry at someone and not kill them. But he says, hey, you, that no, <laughs> now, you're in danger of the judgment. If you're angry with, with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, 
shall be in danger of the council, but whosoever shall say, thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. He, he is, he's, he's intensified it now. If you hold on here and run back to 1 John chapter 3. 1 <coughs> John chapter 3 and verse 15. 1 John 3 and verse 15. When God forbids one sin, at the same time he, he forbids all sins of the same kind. It's not just one, it's going to end up being all of them. 1 John 3 verse 15, Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Again, what did he do? He intensified the rule, the commandment, and he demanded a right heart attitude. And really what we're seeing here, go back to Matthew 5, is the new covenant standard that will, that will be there in the kingdom. In other words, when somebody wrongs them, we're going to see as we get down in, about their enemies, they wouldn't even have an anger, an angry heart at them. They would just turn the other cheek and go on. Now, you'll notice in, in the verse in 522 that, by the way, have you ever been in an angry argument with somebody and you called them Raka? <laughs> you Raka, you know, a vain fellow, empty, okay? Uh, it's a, that's a Jewish word. And it has to do with the scorn of an uncontrolled temper. You know what we would say? He's a moron. That's what we would say. That's the idea. Key Rocco. Yeah. Key Largo. Raka. <laughs> An emptiness there. So there's a... There, by the way, when he puts him in, he puts him in danger of the council... Thou fool, danger of hell fire. Again, judgment. There's, there, there's, there's, there's uh, consequences to this. Verse 23, 523. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar. Again, when's the last time you had a problem with bringing a gift to the altar? Uh, this is a great passage, by the way. To demonstrate the fact that none of the, that that this is not doctrine for you and I today in the church, the body of Christ. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee. Okay, so we got them at odds here. Leave thy gift before the altar and go thy way. First, to reconcile to thy brother and then come and offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Now the point there is you're to take care of the disagreement and not let it continue. By the way, verse 24 gives you a great biblical definition of reconcile. Okay? The end of verse 23. Rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee. So you're at odds with your brother. 
He says, first be reconciled to thy brother. Then what is reconcile going to do? Fix the ad oddment. We're at odds. We're going to fix it. Guess what reconcile means? To restore the relationship. Fix it. It doesn't mean all this other stuff you hear out there in theology. That's simply what it simply means. So take care of it. You're going to bring a gift. You're going to leave it at the altar. By the way, that's a reference out of Deuteronomy 26. The first four verses there where Israel is going to get the land that the Lord promised them and they're to bring an offering to the altar and make it right. Verse 24, he talks about leaving the gift at the altar. Verse 25, he talks about the adversary. You're at odds. Verse 26, Verily I say unto thee, Thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the uttermost fathering. The idea there is that they are to agree with the adversary quickly. Lest what happens? They go before the judge. The judge gives them to the officer. And where are they cast? Into the prison. Okay? So there, there's a thing here. Again, it's, it's, a, it's referring to Israel's indebtedness to the Lord for his forgiveness. And their refusal to go out and pass the blessing on to the Gentiles. And that gets them cast into the, into, in, that gets them underneath the tormentors. So we're talking tribulation passage here. Actually, if you look over at Matthew 18, Matthew 18, there's a parable here. When we get over here to Matthew 18, starts in about verse 23. <clears throat> And it runs down through the end of the chapter. <clears throat> but if you look at verse 34, And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors, that he should pay all that was due unto him. And that's what's going to happen when Israel refuses to give to the Lord what he, what's his. He's going to put him right underneath the rod of the Assyrian, the Antichrist. He's going to just turn him right over. That's what he's alluding to back here in Matthew chapter 5. Now, go back to Matthew 5. In verse 22, there's something we can't miss before we move into the next commandment. Okay? In Matthew 5, 22, he says that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause. Now, you need to make a note there because every new Bible omits without a cause, those three words. And you can see a problem, come over with, to me to Mark chapter 3. I'm going to give you some verses. Mark chapter 3. <coughs> and we won't look at it, but you can write down John 2 verse 15 and Ephesians 4 verse 26. Ephesians 4.26 says, Be ye angry and sin not. And uh, John 2 is the same reference here as Matthew 3. If you look at Matthew 3, verse 5, if you leave out the words without a cause, he ha therefore he has no excuse, and he's in danger of the judgment. If you're angry with your brother, and you leave out without a cause, he's in danger of the judgment. <clears throat> Matthew 
I'm just talking about the phrase. Mark, Mark 3. I need to go to Mark 3, verse 5, because here you're speaking Christ about Christ. So here's a problem. Mark 3, 5. And when he, and that's Christ, looked round about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand, and he stretched it out, and his hand was restored whole as the other. In John 2, it's, he overthrows the money changers, the tables in the temple. But notice, if you leave out the issue of without a cause, the Lord looked around at those religious people, Mark 3, and he was angry with them because of the hardness of their hearts. All right? That's the cause. But if you leave out without a cause... In Matthew, you're, you, you, you really quickly, what looks like a harmless omission becomes very dangerous to the Lord. There's a seriousness uh, of what's going on. It, when, it makes the Lord Jesus Christ seem to condemn himself. If any man is angry with his brother without a cause, slip that out, He's in danger of the judgment. So when Christ looked around and was angry with the money changers, John 2, the religious crowd here in Mark 3, well, he had a cause. He had a reason. So in Matthew 5, 22, leave the, without, leave the words in your Bible alone. Because <laughs> a simple little omission it impacts two passages, Mark 3 and John 2. And it makes the Lord a sinner. And we know, and it actually it condemns him to judgment. So guess what he cannot be? The kinsman redeemer. Okay? All right, go back to Matthew 5. Some just little notes here and there. Matthew 5. <coughs> Verse number 26. Verily I say unto thee, Thou shalt by no means come out thence. Come out, uh, come out thence, that would be come out of the prison, the end of verse 25, till thou hast paid the uttermost fathering. That is the Roman Catholic proof text for purgatory. We were talking about this last night at the Bible study down south about where, where Catholics get their uh, proof text to do things like the confessional booth and, you know, go say eight Hail Marys and three Our Fathers and, you know, give 30 bucks into the widow's box or something, you know. and But here is what they're going to tell you. And by the way, if you ask a Catholic for a verse on purgatory, they'll usually give you this one or they'll give you 1 Corinthians 3, verse 15, and there's trouble, okay? By the way, none of these passages have anything to do with purgatory. So if you're in prison, you're in purgatory, and your family prays you enough and pays enough, high mass, you know, high, high pay, high mass, low pay, low mass, no pay, no mass, <laughs> you know, and off you go. All right, verse 27. Here's the next commandment. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, 
that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Again, there's that heart attitude. But notice the intensification of the standard to make it apply to the motives of the heart. That's why in that new covenant, we looked at it last time, he says, I will put my spirit within you, and a new heart will I give you. I'm going to take away the old, and I'm going to give you a new one. Now, if a man, notice the verse, if a man looketh on a woman to lust after her, that's a, it takes two to tangle in this sin, by the way. It takes the guy looking and the woman being provocative to be looked at. So it's a very interesting thing there, you know, where the ladies are going to be very careful, and these are married women, by the way, very careful not to be provocative to cause another married man to be looking at um, a married woman other than his wife. By the way, well, let's just don't by the way it. Look over at Second Peter 2. 2 Peter 2. 2 Peter 2 and verse 14. Because there's a thing here that, get Second Peter 2 and get Revelation 2. There's a thing here that's going on with these that are more than just, I mean, he's intensifying it. We're looking at a hard issue. So what are we looking at? A spiritual thing, aren't we? If we're talking about the heart, we're talking about spiritual issues. 2 Peter 2, look at verse 14. Having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls, a heart they have exercised with covetous practice, cursed children. And eyes, notice, full of adultery. Revelation 2, verse 14. Revelation 2, 14. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit, there it is, fornication. Verse 20, Revelation 2.20, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication, and to eat things offered unto sacrifices, on things sacrificed unto idols. Again, come back to Matthew 5. In the, there's a doctrine that's going to pop up here that's going to teach men to commit fornication and to eat things offered to idols, sacrificed to idols. What's he telling the believing remnant here? Hey, if you've already looked, you're done deal. You're, you, okay? So now go back to Matthew 5. Look at verse 29. Notice he goes right in. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from, from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish 
and not that the whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. It's interesting. By the way, the Lord Jesus Christ is the original hellfire preacher. Just as he's the original grace thinker, he's the original hellfire preacher. Back in verse 22, they're in the shall be in danger of what? Hellfire. <laughs> and they've been he, he's going at it with them. You're in danger of the judgment. Here in verse 29, hey, it's better to, to go into the kingdom maimed, not whole, than to be cast into hell. Verse 30, it's better to go in without a member than to be cast into hell. So the Lord is preaching. Uh, come back to Isaiah 66 and uh, actually get Deuteronomy 32 first. When the Lord is preaching here, and he says, you know, thy whole body be cast into hell. He's literally telling them, Deuteronomy 32. And we're going to go to Isaiah 66, but Deuteronomy 32 first. He's literally telling them, it's better to lose a part of your body than to be cast into hell. So in the kingdom, which is where we're talking about, hell is a literal, has a literal presence on the earth. Okay, right now hell sits in the center of the earth. It's a spiritual thing. But in that millennial kingdom, there's going to be a literal shaft in the earth that's going to go down into the center of the earth, into hell. And that shaft is going to be open in the millennial kingdom. Now, we've studied this in great detail in our Understanding Israel studies and, and some other studies. But I just want to remind us here, Deuteronomy 32. By the way, Deuteronomy 32 is a second coming passage. Deuteronomy 32, verse 22. For a fire, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> is kindled in mine anger and shall burn unto the lowest hell. Hell is going to burn unto. When Christ comes back, he's going to set a fire. He's going to be coming down out of the Mediterranean. If you think about the Mediterranean, he comes down that sea on, on the eastern side between the Mediterranean and the Jordan River and Jerusalem and all that. He comes right down. And when he's doing it, flaming, taking flaming vengeance and fire, he's just scorching the earth. And he gets down around the end, at the bottom down there of the Dead Sea, about Bozrah and Idumea. If I had the map up, we could see it. And he's literally going to burn a shaft down into hell. He's going to unlock one of the openings to hell that's been covered up. There's three of them. The Red Sea, this one we're talking about here, and then over in the Euphrates River. And he's going to open up that, and he's going to literally burn down in that shaft down there and he's going to burn it down through the earth into the lowest hell he's going to open it up and shall consume the earth with her increase and set on fire the foundations of the mountains 
Come over to Isaiah 66. The fire is going to burn. It's going to consume the earth. It's going to leave a, 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 a passageway, a, a shaft into hell from which people can't, they can't escape it. <clears throat> but you can look down into it from above. You remember Lazarus and the rich man? And they could see across the gulf, but there was no way to cross that. That's the idea here. Isaiah 66, again, we're in the kingdom. He's been talking about the kingdom blessing. He's been talking about <clears throat> all of that going on the whole chapter of 65 into 66. Verse 23, And it shall come to pass that from one new moon, by the way, verse 22, And as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. So notice where we're at. We're in the kingdom, aren't we? We're in the new. <clears throat> and it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord. Where do they come to worship before him? Where is he at? Jerusalem, his, his city he's set up, all the flesh is going to come. Now watch verse 24. And they <coughs> shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me. For their worm shall not die. By the way, that's a description of their soul. It, is, it has degenerated down into a maggot, into a worm. Neither shall their flesh be quenched, and they shall be abhorring unto all flesh. He quotes that in Mark 9, by the way. Those people are going to come out of... If you think about Jerusalem, where it's sitting, they're going to come from the east, and they're going to come from the west into the city. And when they go and they leave out, they go out that south end of the city, they're going to come across this memorial, this monument. And he says, you know what? They're going to come down and they're going to look down in there and they're going to see a place where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And again, he quotes that in Mark 9 because he's referencing all this. So the reason back here, go back there to Matthew 5, the reason that he says all this about hell and hell fire and judgment, by the way, he talks about it more than anyone else in the scripture, <clears throat> is because it is a tremendous issue at his coming and in his kingdom. So what you have in Matthew 5 is a warning concerning the second coming. So when he says, hey, it's better to cut your hand off and to pluck your eye out than it is to be cast into hell over there. And that's what's so very important here. And again, he, he's made a memorial out there for man to see his attitude about sin and what sin will get you. And it's not exactly... A, wonderful thing so what that tells by the, come over to you're in Matthew 5 come over to Matthew 10 
what, what some, some will say, well, hell is just the grave. <laughs> You're going to end up there anyway. So it's not. Some say hell's right now. And the afterlife is heaven. <laughs> so we put in our time in hell and then we go to heaven, which is the afterlife. Well, you know, that's hell isn't the grave or these verses wouldn't mean anything. And hell isn't now or these verses wouldn't mean anything. Matthew 10, verse 28 Fear, and fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. You know, somebody can kill your body, but they can't kill your soul. But there is someone who can take care of both of them. So when you come back to Matthew 5, that's why this is in here. He's, talking, he's intensifying the law. And there's a consequence that's there if you don't have the right heart motivation. And again, in the millennial kingdom, it is going to be instant justice. It isn't going to be justice delayed. Like Ecclesiastes says, a sentence delayed, you know, got trouble. It's going to be instant taking care of it. Verse uh, Matthew 5, look now at verse 31. Here's the next one. It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, <coughs> saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery, and whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. Now, the regulations about marriage... And you got to notice this about marriage in Scripture is that it is very dispensational. Okay? It undergoes, come over to Matthew 19. Marriage undergoes changes, it, dispensational changes. All right? Matthew 19. And I'll be honest with you, these are the passages that the religious denominations use to make statements. The Catholics do it, that once you're married, you're always married, and you've got to go chase them around, if you, and you can't have a divorce. It's against the Word of God. It's against this. It's against that. So you've got to go out there, and you've got to chase them, and you've got to reckon. This is where they use that funny definition about reconciling. And they, use, they say part of reconciliation is chasing your ex down until and bugging them enough until they'll come back to you. That's the idea. Well, if your ex doesn't want you around, you know the police are going to get called. You know, so and you know. But anyway, notice Matthew 19. You found it now. That these are the passages that people use, and Matthew 5 they use them. You can't give them a bill of divorcement, so you just got to tough it out. Well, you know what if. <laughs> If a woman's getting beat or a man's getting beat and there's physical um, domestic violence, physical or, or verbal, they're, you know, okay, maybe I ought to get out of that situation, you know. But anyway, now, oh, now, Rick, you're advocating divorce. Well, in some cases, yeah. But that's going to be what's interesting here. Look at Matthew 19. Look at verse 3. The Pharisees also came unto him tempting him and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every 
caused? Interesting question. But they're trying to get him. And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let no, not man put asunder. He's talking about Adam and Eve. And when God created Adam and Eve and he put them together, guess what he said? That's it. That's how it works. But watch verse 7. They say unto him, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? Why did Moses allow a provision for divorce under the law? By the way, this is Deuteronomy 24, the first four verses, all right, where Moses does that. Now watch verse 8. And he saith unto them, Moses, now watch, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whosoever marrieth her, which is put away, doth commit adultery. Moses gave them a way out, but it was, it was a dispensational thing that he did. Matthew 5 is changing. We're in a different time, and he's changing it again. So, from Adam to Moses, you remember Romans 5, from Adam to Moses, death reigned. So, from Adam to Moses, there was no divorce. Moses, again, because of the hardness of their heart, provided that they could get a divorce. In fact, there was a very lenient provision given. If he hadn't done that, God would have had to destroy him. So under Moses, because of their failure to keep the commandment, he gave them a provision that allowed them to have, get a divorce. Matthew 5, with the kingdom in view, there was to be no divorce except for fornication. So under the kingdom program, the only justification for divorce was adultery or fornication. That was it. When he talks here about fornication, <coughs> the Greek word for fornication is where we get our word pornography from. It's pornia, P-O-R-N-E-I-A, like that. Okay, And the idea here with fornication is not the husband or the wife just stepping out and sleeping one time with someone. Okay, That's adultery. But rather, it's a constant, unceasing activity. It's always, uh, it's an ongoing thing. It's pornographic would be the idea. In other words, it's lewd, it's dirty, vile, 
but it's a repeated activity. So the issue of fornication here, go back to Matthew 5. The reason that the issue of fornication is brought up is because it has a very significant parallel in the dispensational aspect here. Jehovah and Israel were married, weren't they? They had a covenant agreement between them when they came out of Egypt. But because of Israel's constant spiritual fornication, going after other gods, like a wife would go after other men or a man after other women, God and Israel became estranged because Israel, what? They forsook him. So you got Hosea 1, where Hosea marries Gomer. And what God does there with Hosea and his family is he produces a picture of what's happening with Israel. So when Jehovah and Israel are estranged, he divorces them, gives them a bill of divorcement because of Israel's fornication. In the kingdom, what's he going to do with them? He's going to reconcile all that, isn't he? He's going to reunite. He's going to remarry his bride, Israel. Okay? And again, you go to Isaiah 62, you go to Hosea 2, you see all of that, how it works out. <clears throat> Israel's, there's that, there's that parallel there. That's why it's brought up. And the kingdom provision for marriage is that you're married except that you, you, the only way you're getting out of it is because of fornication. And it reflects the dispensational situation in the nation of Israel at this moment. For us today, by the way, go back, you're back in Matthew 5. If you want to understand the issues of marriage under grace, you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And you go to Ephesians chapter 5 and Colossians chapter 3. Okay? 1 Corinthians 7 is very clear that there is a provision for divorce in the age of grace. And he says, if you get it, you haven't sinned. If divorce is the unpardonable sin, which a lot of people think it is, then what did Christ die for? He had to die for that, didn't he? Things happen. Life happens. It just does. People do what people want to do. <laughs> and when it happens, it's hurt. it hurts. It breaks because you take a one flesh scenario and breaks it apart. But anyway, back to Matthew 5. Okay? <clears throat> By the way, most people just read right on over that and keep moving. <laughs> I get <laughs> You start talking about divorce and everybody ducks. And, and, and there really is no reason because he's just fixed it. Adam to Moses, no divorce. Moses says you can get a divorce. He says in the kingdom there's no divorce except for fornication. And by the way, it will end up being a heart issue, won't it? So it's a spiritual issue. Verse 33. Again, ye have heard that it had been said by them of old time. Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, 
for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one white hair or one hair white or black. But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay. For whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. Now, <coughs> these, these verses, <coughs> verse 34 there where he says, swear not at all. These verses get used by people to say, you can't go into court of law and right, hold up your right hand and swear an oath. You know where they say, raise your right hand, I solemnly swear to tell the truth, nothing but the truth, to help me God. You can't do that. These verses say, don't do that. Well, if you go over there to Matthew 26, I was going to give you the verse, but now I can't think of it. 2662, you got the Lord himself <clears throat> where he's brought before the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas. 2662, and the high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it with these witnesses against thee? But Jesus held his peace, and the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said unto him, Thou hast said. What did the Lord do? He's in a court of law. He raised his hand and said, I'll tell you the truth. You just said it, pal. What you just said is the truth. See, the Lord was under oath, and he took care of it. So when you go back here to chapter 5, I love, you know, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstools. Again, a great passage to remember about Jerusalem, the city of the king, the great king. Verse 36, neither shalt thou swear by head, by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair whiter black. <laughs> But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay, for whatsoever is more than these committeth of evil. What he's talking about there is daily conversation. He's telling them not to go around taking an oath that is going to bind them in a lot of things. All right? He's not talking about you can't swear, you know, yes, I affirm that that's true or not. He's just, don't go around and make foolhardy oaths about things. You can't even make a hair black or white. Rather, mean what you say and let your word be your bond. And that's going to be important, verse 37. Let your communication be. That's the whole issue here. <clears throat> you can't swear by heaven, that belongs to God. By the way, you can't swear by the earth because that belongs to him too. Don't go around making foolhardy gestures and oaths that you can't keep. Let your word, let what you say be your bond. Now, come over to Zephaniah chapter 3. Zephaniah chapter 3. 
Because in Zephaniah 3, a second coming passage here, the issue of their word being their bond is critical for the little flock. Zephaniah 3 and verse 13. Zephaniah 3, verse 13. The remnant of Israel shall not do iniquity, nor speak lies, neither shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they shall feed and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Notice that the little flock, the believing remnant of Israel, they're not going to speak lies, and they're not going to have a deceitful tongue. The idea, the importance of this is that the kingdom saints are to let their word be their bond. And the reason that they're not going to speak lies and the reason that that's important is because in Psalms 10 and in Psalms 55, the Antichrist is going to speak lies. Psalms 55, he says his word is going to be as smooth as butter. 55.21. And we think about politicians. Well, that's what the Antichrist is. He's a politician. So you've got someone speaking lies to everyone. Over there in 2 Thessalonians 2, lying wonders. That little flock, the believer, is going to speak the truth. So when you come back to Matthew 5, there's a demarcation between the faithful remnant and apostate Israel associated with the Antichrist, and it has to do with them making oaths and, and, and not keeping their word. And that little flock's commanded, let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. Be who you are. So when you come back to Matthew 5, verse 38, by the way, your tongue... <laughs> Uh, last week we were talking about Proverbs and the, the tongue. The tongue is a critical part member of your body. <laughs> and uh, it can get you in trouble real quick. And it can get you in trouble without you even wanting to be in trouble. <laughs> so you have to be very careful with it. Um, you know, sometimes we get that runoff at the mouth syndrome, <laughs> foot and mouth disease, you know. Sometimes when you know you've been talking too much, you just need to shut up and be quiet and stop and just let it be. All right, verse 38. You guys doing okay? All right. Verse 38. Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Uh-oh. That verse right there is one that's so misused. Come back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 19. Boy, you see these guys, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And revenge is on order. Matthew 19. I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 19. Deuteronomy chapter 19. The problem is revenge doesn't have anything to do with what God were, God's talking about in this passage. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth has nothing to do about revenge, but it has everything to do about a civil regulation. Okay? It's not authorizing violence. 
on an individual basis. It's a civil regulation. Deuteronomy 19 and verse 16. Deuteronomy 19, 16. If a false witness rise up against any man to testify against him that which is wrong, then both the men between whom the controversy is shall stand before the Lord, before the priest and the judges which shall be in those days. And the judges shall make diligent inquisition, and behold, if the witness be a false witness, and hath testified falsely against his brother, then. So after the judges have made a thorough inquiry, they've come to a civil, judicial decision in the courtroom, then shall ye do unto him as he had thought to have done unto you, to his brother, so shalt thou put the evil away from among you. And those which remain shall hear and fear, and shall henceforth commit no more any such evil among you. And thine eye shall not pity, but life shall go for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. <clears throat> so when you come back here to Matthew 5, it's a civil matter, not a personal matter. Don't let anyone ever try to make you think like you got to go out there and just eye for eye, bam, 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 you know. No, that's not what's going on. It was always said around my house growing up, good men are always reasonable. <clears throat> and when you meet someone who isn't reasonable, it's because they got something else going on, a hidden agenda, more than likely. Back in Matthew 5, <clears throat> the application here, Matthew 5, verse 38. Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Don't resist evil. <clears throat> Now, what happens here is they, they, they pull that, that out of context and they run with that, you know. <clears throat> Verse 39, But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Yeah, do you see how problems you have trying to do that today? You know, you'd be, you'd be, you wouldn't never get anywhere. And if any man sue thee, verse 40, will sue thee at the law, take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. <coughs> Nobody that I've ever ran into that said they're following the Sermon on the Mount did any of that. Turn the right cheek, go an extra mile. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which 
despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, there it is. What reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same. And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so. You're not going to stand out in the crowd, is what he's saying here, and identify yourself as God's people like the faithful remnant of God should. The world takes care of its friends and salutes their friends. That's that issue about the publican thing. <clears throat> you try loving your enemies. That's a different lifestyle than out there in the world. What does the world do? They salute their friends. They take care of their friends. They manage their enemies in a different manner. Verse 48, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Now, the stuff from 44 down to 46, the ethics here of the Sermon on the Mount, again, we have it very much in Romans 12, same, same situation. So we can make that application, that hard application of righteousness to us. But when he talks here about all of this, and I, I, we just read down through it. One time's getting short, but it's pretty straightforward. Okay? But verse 48 is the linchpin of all of it. Because in six one he says, Take heed that ye do not your alms before men. He's going to move into a different direction. But in verse 48, what does he say? Be thou, what? Perfect. So from verse, he, he's talking about being perfect and meeting the requirements of verse 44 to 40, 43 to 47. <coughs> Excuse me. In, those manner, in these <clears throat> manners of treating people, whom you don't like, and who don't like you. You're to be as perfect, little flock, as your Father in heaven is. So again, how did your Father in heaven treat his enemies? Well, we know he died for them, but you go treat your enemies the same way. You love them. You do them good. You pray for them. You help them out. You be like your Father. That's why he says there, your father, verse 45, that you may be the children of your father which is in heaven. See? Verse 48 is not a proof text of sinless perfection. That's what people use it for. What does the word perfect mean in Scripture? Mature, complete, 2 Timothy 3.17. That the man of God may be perfect, comma, that is, what is perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. The issue of perfect is he's complete, thoroughly equipped with everything he needs. He's perfect. 
over there, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, he says, Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect. has nothing to do with sinlessness. It has everything to do with some knowledge and understanding. So what he's getting at here as we end chapter 5, that stuff that we read down through from 43 to 47, hey, your lifestyle is going to be one that has some understanding of who you are and what needs to be done. Be ye therefore perfect. You need to be acting as who you are in Christ. They're going to have that ability because of the heart attitude and the heart thing. I really want you to catch the intensification of the law now. Because we're going to start chapter 6 next time. And he's going to get down and he's going to teach them how to pray. And we're going to see the Our Father prayer, which is a prayer that they're going to pray in the kingdom. Not every morning before going to, to the day's activities okay so and we covered a lot of verses a lot more than i usually cover but they're pretty straightforward when you notice the intensification of the heart it's a heart thing now moses gave them the law they know the commandments but the lord comes in and says yeah but now we're going to talk about the spiritual need that you need the heart I'm going to give it to you. It's in the New Covenant. It's coming. This is, what, this is that spontaneous lifestyle now, that righteous lifestyle of the kingdom that you're going to have. Okay? We'll continue that in Chapter 6. All right? The hour is up. <laughs> Dear Holy Father, we thank you for the evening, Lord. We thank you for the study, for the look here at this wonderful passage of what you're going to do with your, fa with your, with your people in the earth, in the kingdom, and how they'll live, and they'll live for you. And Lord, I just pray that we would take our information into heart and to live for you as well. In your name we pray. Amen.